Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, a show that brings you deep dive interviews with the motorcycle industry insiders and racers that make the sport move. I'm Dale Spangler, and in this episode, my guest is Monster Energy Honda factory rally team racer, Skylar House. This episode is brought to you by Moto America, home of AMA Superbike Racing and North America's premier motorcycle road racing series. Rewatch every round of the 2023 series and revisit all the season's action with the Moto America Live Plus video on demand streaming service. Or visit the Moto America YouTube channel for race highlights and behind the scenes video content. Look for the 2024 race schedule to be announced soon over on the MotoAmerica.com website and be sure to follow Moto America on social media for real time series updates and original content. Let's get started with this week's episode. I'm excited to welcome back today's guest. He's a friend of the show, rally racer, Skyler House. Skyler, how are you today and what's happening? Well, I think I know what's happening. We were talking a little bit before we came on. It sounds like you got to hit the ground running and get in your truck and get out on your bike here this afternoon. Yeah, it's uh, a full schedule being a rally racer. It's kind of a misconception because we only have like four or five races a year. So people might not think that we're doing a lot, but every race is perfectly scheduled out. So as soon as we get home, We get just enough time to recover and then train and then head straight back out for the next race because everything we do is minimum one week long. Plus, we spend usually about a week beforehand in whatever country we're going to race in to like prepare and get acclimated. So every single race we go to is minimum like a two to three week, you know, away from home. And then Dakar is the biggest race. So we have to train the most amount for Dakar. Plus, it's the longest that we're going to be away. So me and Ricky just finished like a few days of roadbook training and then took two days off for the holiday. And then now we're headed back to Southern California to do another week and a half of testing. And then following that, we'll do another week of roadbook training and then take the last two weeks before Dakar to like kind of come down and recover. And then we fly out to Saudi Arabia for the Dakar. So it's, uh, it's, it's full on. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely your crunch time, I would assume, for the year because, you know, so much importance placed on the Dakar race, which this year starts January 5th. But yeah, it's got to be just, you know, wide open. Like you said, every little thing you can do before Dakar comes and next thing you know, it'll be here. But first off, I do want to say congrats on signing with the factory Honda team. That's got to be just an amazing feeling. I mean, what, what does that mean to you to be able to land on a team like factory Honda Racing? It's, you know, definitely a dream come true. I learned how to ride on a Honda and I spent a considerable amount of time throughout my early days as a privateer on a Honda as well. And so, you know, just in general, Honda, HRC, this whole program across all aspects of racing is just like an insane 
it's an insane program. So to be a part of it now is something really cool. In fact, I got an invite to go to their thanks day that they do in Japan, which is really cool looking. They do go-kart racing and they set up a little motocross track and they have a couple people from every single discipline that Honda sponsors. So we got like Formula One and everything and I got an invite to go, but it's so close to Dakar that I was like, ah, you know what, just coming off of an injury. As much as I would want to go to Japan and have that kind of holiday, I, (laughs) I need to spend my time in the Southern California desert beating me up doing better training and stuff. But they uh, already, just in the short amount of time that I've been on a part of the team, they've uh, they've welcomed me in. And it's been a pretty amazing change just in my personal life. And as far as my career, like the, having Monster Energy on board too is really cool to have, you know, those kind of uh, perks that come along with a energy drink sponsor and uh, everything else with HRC, like the whole program that they run is really tight. And, you know, the, the testing and development that we're putting into the bike now is, is really, really uh, intense and, and cool to see. So it's been a really awesome move for me just in my life, like I said, in my life and my career, but um, I'm stoked to land here. I mean, to be with names like Max Verstappen and Mark Marquez, to be like put in that same realm as those racers, I mean, that's just got to be a huge confidence boost. Just putting that that shirt on, that pitch shirt, it's just got to be an amazing like boost in confidence. Yeah, the the weird thing is, is like, you know, I'm just a kid from the desert in Utah. <laughs> and I think rally racing and like the Dakar specifically is such a massive sport around the world. Like it's so widely viewed everywhere except for america and so growing up i always watched it on tv with my dad but now living training and operating out of america you know i don't get noticed and i'm just still kind of just a dirt bike rider here when you put it into perspective in the rest of the world and i get invited to go do this thing with all of these insane celebrity athletes i was like oh all right this is kind of cool okay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. It's still, it's still, for me, I'm just still the regular dude riding a dirt bike. So that's a good point though. Like, it's funny how if you were somewhere in Europe, for example, and you walked into a grocery store, there probably might be some people that recognize you, you know, like that's just how big that sport is over there. Same thing with a guy like Mark Marquez. I mean, they got the paparazzi probably following them around when they're out on the streets or whatever. So yeah, it's unfortunate, but on the same token, you can probably say that with your success at the car rally, you might have a little bit of influence because I feel like in the U.S., rally racing is continually growing. It's getting more interest from racers and the media like. So that's got to feel good, too, to feel like you've had some contribution to the elevation of rally racing in the United States. Yeah, that's my whole goal. Like I got it introduced to rally by uh, this guy, Garrett Poucher. Obviously, I like I knew the Dakar and everything growing up and I got to ride for Chris Blaze, who was, until Ricky, he was the last American finish on the podium. So I knew of it and everything, but I really got introduced to actual riding and and competing in rally by Garrett. And at the time, like I was pretty burned out. Like I tried to do my own program in Baja and I basically went broke and I was just doing everything I could to make a difference on my resume, just doing whatever to try and get some support, whether it be factory support or support from someone that I basically didn't have to, you know, work 14 hours a day in order to race. And when I met Garrett, he was operating as his own kind of like, you know, little team. 
And I had just like hit rock bottom. I got involved with a couple of dudes that really took advantage of me and and took all the wind out of my sails. And so when Garrett put a road book in front of my face, it like lit this fire that I was missing big time because I was racing every single weekend at Best in the Desert or Heron Hounds or Baja or whatever it could be. And I was just like, I felt like I was treading water, like paddling and going nowhere. And as soon as I started riding with a road book, I'm like, oh, this is sick. Like, this is exactly what I want to do. And then I raced and I'm like, this is the most raw form of racing on the planet. Like nobody knows where you're going. You know, in Heron Hounds, people still bend the rules and somehow, you know, end up either going out and riding the course beforehand or, you know, have been in the area for so long, they know where they're going. And in Baja, you can go pre-run and it can, it comes down to like a, a game of who's got the most available time, who's got the most money and most resources to go out there and pre-run and make shortcuts. And it doesn't really come down to how fast you are. And I was so over it. And I started doing rally. I'm like, all right, nobody knows where they're going. You have a piece of paper and a compass and an odometer in front of you to tell you where you're going. So you have to be able to interpret that, read it, read the terrain in front of you, and still be able to be a good rider in order to go fast at rally. And I was like, this is how it should be. This is how riding and racing should be, in my opinion. Like, It's not about how much you've practiced or how much you've memorized the track. It's about who can do everything as they see it for the first time better than the next guy. And then you like have to throw in, you know, mechanical issues because you're going such a far distance and stuff. So I fell in love with it in such a huge way. And so when I realized too, like I, so I won the, the Sonora rally and that gave me a free entry fee to the Dakar. I'm like, all right, well, this just snowballed super quickly. <laughs> yeah. So I went and I, you know, I got super lucky that I, that very first Dakar I went to, I ended up hitting a kid on a scooter on the liaison and separating my shoulder. So I had to abandon the race, but I got lucky that before that I was able to like get a top 10 stage. I almost won a stage and, uh, and it got everyone kind of fired up, but I realized then that there was no information for us. We, me and Garrett had to like figure it all out. We really had to dig deep to get the information. And at the time from that point and before it was always, you know, Oh, this is just something you watch a factory rider do on TV. Like, you know, even the amateurs then had big time sponsors that were covering the cost and everything. This wasn't something that you could just go do kind of like a Baja or a Vegas Torino or something where you can kind of do it on a bare bones effort and have the information at least. And so when I started doing it, it, kind of opened that door because, you know, Kirk Selly went and I knew him. It wasn't just something that I, wa- I watched on TV. I actually knew him. And then Ricky Brabeck went and I'm like, dude, I actively race against this him and I know I could beat him too. I'm like, if he can do this, I know I can do it. Granted, they were still doing it on factory teams. And so finally, when I went and I started sharing a lot of that information, what it took to get there and the information was getting out there that there's teams readily available that you could rent their services. So you just show up with your gear bag. They have a bike mechanics and spare parts and they handle all the logistics for you. So it's not like this big, giant undertaking. It has slowly gained a lot more interest because people realize now that it's actually possible for them to go and do. Granted, you probably have to take out a second mortgage on your house. Yeah. pay a hundred grand to do it, but it's still, it's possible. It's not just some wish or dream that is floating in by. So that's kind of like my whole game plan now is, yeah, of course I want results and I want to achieve as much as possible as I can in my career and personally, but I know there's a lot of really 
talented people here in U.S. that just had no idea that this was even a possibility. You know, now it's become a career of mine. And I think late in my career, I've been able to achieve this with trying to learn it all on my own as well. If someone else can come along younger and doesn't have to learn the hard way like I did, you know, they might be able to achieve some really good stuff. And it's, you know, it won't be just a French or a European or South American rider that's finishing on the podium all the time now. Maybe we can switch that over and get some more Americans on there, you know? Absolutely. I think we've sort of seen that with the ISDE in a lot of ways, because like once the U.S. sort of like created these series, like the Sprint Enduro series that we're focused on, like actually training for ISDE, all of a sudden the Americans are in the contention every single race. And so, like you said, there's a lot of talented off-road racers here to where guys like Jacob Argubright that have seen what you're doing and what Ricky Brabeck are doing are now kind of influencing more of these racers to come up. Was it Mason? uh, Klein. Mason Klein, yeah. So another good example. Like it just seems like there's a lot of these younger racers coming up that are starting to consider Rally Raid where maybe they wouldn't have even looked at it in the past. The other cool thing too, like, you know, there's getting to be a little bit more accessibility around USA. Like they have the KTM Adventure Rallies. That's where Mm -hmm. Mason got introduced to it. Or they have Baja Rally or Sonora Rally. And before I got so stacked with my schedule, I was always trying to do like once a year, do kind of like a little rally camp. And there's a couple other guys that do some rally camps where you get like three or four days worth of road books where we can all just go camp out and go ride these road books and get more people introduced to it. Because, you know, the hard thing too is everyone looks at the equipment. Oh, I need road book. It's going to cost me 1500 bucks to get all of the equipment and have my bike decked out for rally stuff. And they don't want to do that, but then they'll, they'll have no problem going spending 1500 bucks on a cool anodized exhaust. <laughs> exactly. <you know? laughs> so there's still a little bit of a disconnect, but I think having these different styles of events, and I'm really bummed out that Garrett had his crash and disconnected from the whole sport because he had high hopes of trying to do like a little USA rally, like a series almost and doing like a three day rally or something, just three days out of a singular bivouac, you know, and trying to do these little events that might be possible because rally is just impossible in USA with the, with the government trying to do like a closed race course or something. And so slowly but surely we're just getting more and more people that are trying to put more effort into having either events or just little get togethers where people can come through and get the access and start riding into road books because you know like i said someone who's good at rally can come from anywhere like you know you look at mason no dig at mason but coming up as a kid or whatever he wasn't just this like lights out blinding fast he's kind of you know a kid that's good at working on computers and all of a sudden you put a road book in front of his face and he can interpret that and ride it at speed faster than you know most other people or the vice versa like you could take one of the fastest beach racers in the world and he's a factory sponsored rider, but you put a roadbook in front of his face and it doesn't compute and he just can't, he can't do both at the same time. So it's super interesting to see where the talent can actually come from. And like I said, I, you know, there's so many talented riders here in USA. I think the more we can get the access to it, the more we can find more people like that, you know? Before you finish today's episode, first we have a word from our sponsor. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. 
Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Your progression, though, in rally racing in general has just been like astounding. At Dakar, you had a ninth place, a fifth place, and then last year, a third place. And then, of course, in the World Rally Championship, where you took a win also, so the Rally du Maroc. I mean, I feel like coming into this year, I mean, you got to be feeling pretty good for being a contender, I would assume. Yeah, it was a super cool feeling because I knew I could continue to do better. Like, that was always the hard part for me as being a privateer is not necessarily like, you know, okay, yeah, everyone's got to work hard and stuff. But for me, I always knew I could continue to do better. And I was just like, man, I'm spending so much of my focus and so much of my time at work or working on bikes or, you know, what the, the year that I got ninth, I broke that bike in half, <laughs> like legitimately actually broke the bike in half. I broke the pivot bolt twice and I actually broke all the motor mounts out of the frame. I broke that the frame in half. Like it was insane. And so like, I was always looking for that next step of like, man, I know I can continue to do better. Like I lost an hour because of mechanical issues and I was only an hour and 20 minutes off of the podium spot. And then the next time when I finished fifth, I'm like, okay, I had no mechanical issues. And I was only like maybe 20 or 30 minutes away from the win. And I was like, all right, those were my mistakes. And if I can, you know, fix that stuff up, then I can do better. And when I got onto a factory team, my very first world rally was in Kazakhstan. I won two stages, you know, on par to win the event and then had my rear moose disintegrated and failed. So I didn't finish a stage. And then the next rally was in Russia at the Silkway rally. And I was able to finish on the podium of that one. So I was like, okay, right away. I know that with the equipment and the focus and all that, like, I know I can do what I've always thought I could do. Like, I I know I can win. I know I can be competitive against these guys. And then this last year was able to lead the majority of the race and then come down to the finish line and the closest finish of the Dakar history against two former winners and guys who've been in the sport for like, you know, three times as long as I have. So I'm like, all right, like this is kind of the moment, you know, like a lot of people always work for the factory ride and think the grass is greener on that side, but you know, the work just changes. But when you finally get the tools that you've always needed in order to start succeeding and and then it starts happening and you can see the, like the tears and the, the hard work and the sweat and everything that went on behind the scenes. And that finally starts poking through because you have like you have the equipment that you've been competing against this whole time. Like that was the real kind of like moment of clarity for me that I'm like, all right, this feels normal now. I don't feel like I'm treading water anymore. I feel like I'm actually able to start swimming. And, uh, that was the coolest thing for me and be able to just start refining my craft. And now being in a position to where I can finally afford my own place and not have to rent a room at a friend's house. This is like, it's such a insane game changer for my mentality. Like, I started getting stuck in a rut again where I was just like, oh man, like, okay, get up and train and you know, all of this. And and now getting into my own spot where I just have, I don't have roommates and I don't, I just, just me and my girl and we can focus on our own stuff. And gosh, it's such like a mental boost and I'm so motivated and stoked to start doing stuff. So like having these big moments in life, just like continue to keep helping the the program is like so awesome. Well, it sure seems like Honda is serious about winning the car in 2024. I mean, it seems like you can describe it as, I mean, I think I've even seen it written that way. It's like a super team. I mean, there's five of you guys on this team. All of you guys are, you know, high level racers. You got Ricky, who's won the race, Pablo Quintanilla, Adrian Van Beveren, 
Uh, I think Cornejo and that, yeah, I mean, there's five of you guys. So coming into the Dakar, like how much does like the team strategy factor into winning Dakar? Because I know a lot of people out there are probably thinking, you know, what does it matter if you have teammates or not? It's an individual race. But I think it really factors into, you know, getting to the finish line, having teammates that can help you if we need to. And with this team, though, like, I mean, how do you even choose who's the team leader? I mean, it seems like there's a lot going on. Honda's definitely serious this year, it sure seems like. Yeah, so things in rally sport and in Dakar specifically have changed within the last probably 10 years. There used to be, you know, the guy who was intended to win on the team and then all the rest of the guys were the water boys or there to assist or whatever. And now that's gone away because of all the rules and regulations. You can't change parts anymore. Like if something broke, another rider can stop and help you fix it. But you can't switch tires and you can't switch an engine and all of these different things. So you're kind of on your own. So that just means all of our teammates are direct competitors. Mm. However, we do work with them when we're developing, testing, training, all of that. So we gain like a pretty close relationship with them. And so when we're out there racing, if we catch up to one another, we all group up and we can start riding together, then then it kind of becomes a little bit more like training rather than racing. And, and we can feed off of each other. Like we know who has specific strengths, like Adrian is really, really good at doing the roadbook perfectly. And then there's a couple other guys or like myself are a little bit better at maybe pushing. I don't really do the roadbook perfectly, but I can kind of interpret the terrain and stuff. So even though I'm not doing it perfectly, I can, I can still get it done and maybe shave some seconds on some corners here and there. And so we can kind of feed off of each other that way. But as far as like team strategy goes, there is none. The only strategy is whoever is the fastest wins the race. And now we have a a new 48 hour chrono stage, which is interesting because it's like how things kind of used to be. You just raced until it was dark and then you slept and then you got up when the sun came up and started racing again. So now there's a strategy to that because if you stop too early, if you stop before four o'clock at night, say if you stop at three, the time keeps running until four. So you'll, you'll get an hour onto your time if you stop at three. So essentially the the strategy now is to like race as long as possible and reach the finish line as quickly as possible, but don't, it's, it's, it's strange. So this strategy is going to like, you know, come into play and see who can actually like interpret it the best between Honda and the other teams, because that's where like team strategy comes in, you know, with KTM and, and Husqvarna last year, it came down to within a minute and a half separating all three of me, Toby and and Kevin. And there was no team strategy. There was nothing like, oh, hey, you need to slow down and let these guys win. It was just, hey, don't go home in a helicopter. Like bring this thing home. Even though it was like such a massive, huge event that that everyone strives to win, it was still just on us. And And it came down to still some raw racing, which was really, really cool. So yeah, I think heading into this year with all five of us, I think most of it just comes down to, you know, the numbers. If you have more people in the race, your likelihood of being on the podium or winning the race is higher. So, yeah. So back to that 48 hour chrono stage is the goal then to get as far as because I think the way I read it, there's like multiple bivouacs to where like you want to get to as to the farthest bivouac you can. Meaning like if it's four o'clock and you still got 50 kilometers to get to the next bivouac, then you ride to that next one and that's where you camp, right? Is that how it works? Yeah. So each bivouac is set up. Essentially, all you have is 
a sleeping bag, a tent, and like military style rations. Oh wow! Yeah, it's not a not stuff that you set out either. This is all stuff you just get from the organization. So it's like real legit hard camping. So there's like seven bivouacs or something like that within two stages, all just little tiny camps. So the ideal thing would be to show up at a bivouac at like 3.55 and then be able to start the next day and then just ride straight through. So it's only like a six, just over 600 kilometers total between the two stages, but there's seven different bivouacs that you can camp out between the two. Like it's almost possible to just do all two of them in one day but they made it kind of impossible to do it. So you almost have to camp. So I don't know if you're allowed to continue racing after four either. So it's like, if you show up at 250 and they're like, yeah, no, you can't make it to the next bivouac before four, you have to stay here, then that's it. It's going to be interesting because like, I think all the bike riders are just going to ride as far as they possibly can until four o'clock but i don't know if they're gonna stop us before like like or what happens if we ride past four o'clock like do we get a time penalty so i don't know it's got to be tough i mean you got to be able to go with the flow don't you you can't be like really set in your ways like you'll figure it out in the situation like nobody truly knows so i am curious though like this camping right where you have very minimal primitive i mean that in and of itself to me with 12 stages a uh, prologue and then one rest day. So you're going 14 days. I mean, just staying fed and hydrated has got to be just difficult for that race. Yeah. To put it into perspective, I can burn anywhere from like five to 7,000 calories a day. And so try to take all that in while riding. Yeah, Yeah. While riding, like, you know, say at six days, you're on the bike for a lot of the time, but you can really stuff your face because you come into checkpoints where they're going to have sandwiches for you or bananas and all types of stuff to eat. But in Dakar, you only can eat in the bivouac. So you eat when you first wake up and then when you get back. So everything else throughout the entire 10 hours, 10 to 12 hours that you're on the bike is stuff that you have to carry with you. And so, yeah, whatever you mix into your hydration bag is super important. And then all the little snacks and stuff that you take with you is also really important. And I don't know, like it, it's weird to look and call me like an athlete because I'm also a little bit, we'd like to joke around and call it fluffy. (laughs) You know, I'm not like this super chiseled, super cross skinny dude, but it works really well into my favor because I'm not like relying on intaking a ton of food throughout the day. Like my body can be able to feed off of itself. So I'm able to stay pretty well, like energized throughout the entire stage because I carry a little bit of extra body fat on me. I've heard like a diet, like a ketogenic diet actually helps in those endurance type scenarios because your body does tend to burn more of like the fat on your body instead of needing carbs as much. So it's funny how like that type of everything is getting so scientific, whether it's the bike, the fuel in your body. I mean, it's just, there's just so many aspects to it that you got to nail to, to be a contender. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Now the, the, the diet and hydration is like, is so important because like it's, it's one of the main things that a lot of people miss when they first come to Dakar, they feel like they're eating a lot. And then by day 10 or whatever, they start really fatiguing out. It's just because your body is starved for nutrients. <laughs> Definitely. Well, what, what are your like kind of immediate goals for this year's Dakar? And then, you know, of course for the world rally championships, I mean, no matter what, they can't take it away from you. From what I've read, I think you're one of only five Americans to ever be on the podium at a Dakar race. So that, that surprised me. I thought there was more. I know there's Ricky, 
I would imagine like maybe Jimmy Lewis might have made a podium, maybe Scott Harden. Danny Laporte, he was the first person to finish on the podium. And then Jimmy Lewis, then Chris Blaze, and then Ricky, and then me. That's a pretty amazing stat when you think about it. You know, it's it's been going on since what, like 1970 something, I think, and only five Americans on the podium. Yeah, no. So I'm pretty soaked on it. My... I don't know, like I got kind of a good wake up call in, in Morocco. So I, I crashed in Sonora in Mexico and broke my scapula. And then my first race back, like, I don't know what was up with me, but I just wasn't really feeling myself coming into Morocco. Like my motivation wasn't very high and I was just kind of feeling blah. And when I started the prologue, I would, I felt like I was riding quickly and I felt comfortable, but I just, I don't know, for some reason, just didn't really feel myself. I just misjudged a line and hit a big hole and and had a really massive crash. And I broke my tibia plateau in my leg, got some nerve damage in my back, and then broke like a small bone in my hand and that I've just recovered from. So I've only been training for about two weeks now after that. So I'm coming into Dakar, like I would say considerably less trained than I was last year. Like minus my Dakar and Abu Dhabi finishes, I went undefeated for the rest of the year. And I I won every single best in the desert and rally and everything that I entered and then finished on the podium. So like last year I was way more like trained and my my mentality was boosted because I hadn't lost. And so now this year I finished on the podium and then just went downhill after that, like had two major crashes with injuries. So it's like my mentality kind of changes, but both times that I've had good results at the Dakar, it's because of that. Like my ninth place was four months after I broke my neck and had my neck fused. And then, you know, the next year was I didn't train at all. I think I rode one time one week before I left and it was on a friend's KTM 250 and it was because I had to sell everything I own. <laughs> So I didn't train, I didn't go to the gym, I didn't ride a dirt bike, I didn't do nothing, and I, and then I finished fit. And there's something about the whole like, you know, lack of pressure where you go into it knowing like, hey, look, the only thing I can do is do my best. And now for me, I'm coming in on essentially a new bike for me. Like, yeah, I've gone, I've been able to train and ride, but you know, over the last, you know, 6 to 8 months has been mostly just recovering from injuries. So I'm going into it with the the mentality of, look, I just need to do the best I can. And that's it. Looking forward to tuning in as always every year. Anybody out there who's interested, you can definitely tune in. I think it starts January 5th, goes through, I think the 19th. There's 14 days, 12 stages. So it's going to be pretty exciting. Oh, one other thing I wanted to bring up though, uh, your hometown of St. George, Utah, proclaimed November 4th is Skyler Howe's Day. How cool is that, man? It's <laughs> yeah. such a random thing. My mom sent me a text and was like, hey, what are you doing on November 3rd? I said, I don't know. I think I'm just getting home. She's like, all right, well, you need to wear something nice and be to City Hall at this time. And I'm like, for what? And they're like, oh, they got something for you. I'm like, uh, this is strange. <laughs> And uh, when I walked in there, there's like a thousand people in the city hall. What the heck is going on here? Turned out they were not there for me. <laughs> there was the, the the city had like a big uh, pride parade and like they had this big giant meeting about it. And so I walk in there and I'm like, were all these people here for me? In fact, most of the people were not there for me. <laughs> but this was even before the Dakar podium. Oh, after wow. I won yeah. Morocco. 
I won Morocco and I won a bunch of the other races that year and, and, uh, you know, finished on the podium of a couple of the other world events. They gave it to me for my achievements in racing They made November 4th Skyler House Day in St. George, Utah. So, and it doesn't really do anything besides, uh, I get to hang a piece of paper on my wall. That's kind of cool, but I try to use it, you know, if it is Skyler House Day, I'll try to use it for a little bit of benefit and try to get people outside and just do something. I started following a, um, uh, ultra marathon runner. And usually when he's at like race mile 100 or race mile 150 or something like that, he'll always say, this is your daily reminder to do hard things. And so I've kind of adapted that into my daily life. Everything that I do with Dakar, with training, with, with racing, with anything, it's, you know, it's, it's funner when you do it, when it's hard, you know, you get a better sense of satisfaction was something that was hard to do and you were able to accomplish it and came out a better person on the other side. So, uh, that's kind of what I'm hoping this whole Skylar house thing, I can push that message a little bit more. So I love that. Well, it's been awesome to see your progression again, your success, you know, your second factory ride now with American Honda coming into the 2024 Dakar rally as a contender. Appreciate the fact that you're willing to come on this show even. So just, uh, nothing but good things to say about you, Skylar. We'll look forward to following your, uh, your race and how, how well you do here in January at the 2024 Dakar Rally. So how can listeners support you and uh, follow your racing efforts? Uh, well, there's only 30 minutes of coverage every day on uh, NBC Sports, I believe. But they have really good coverage on YouTube. And then I try to do as good of a job as I can on my social media, which is just Skylar House 110 uh, on across all channels. Who are the other Americans in there this year? Is, is Mason in there again, Klein? Mason's riding as a privateer. Uh, I think Jacob, Jacob Augerbright is racing oh, yeah. again. Yep. And then Kyle McCoy uh, will be racing as uh, in the original by Moto class, which is the originally called Mali Moto, but it's the unsupported. So you basically have to be kind of six days style. You have to do all your own bike work and sleep in a tent. Looking forward to seeing, you know, following along this January. And uh, oh yeah, congrats again on the uh, the purchase of your first home. Looks like a dream home for a dirt biker, that's for sure. Primarily garage, a little bit of house. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, stoked on this. Well, again, appreciate your time today, Skyler. All the best for a fantastic 2024 rally season. Cool. Thanks for having me on. If you enjoyed this episode, follow Pit Pass Moto on your favorite podcast listening app so you never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our show. We'd greatly appreciate it. You can also follow us on social media or visit pitpassmotorsports.com where you can listen to the past episodes and check out the new Pit Pass Motorsports blog powered by Podium Life, featuring articles and industry news focused exclusively on two-wheel and four-wheel motorsports. Head to pitpassmotorsports.com to check it out. I'm Dale Spangler. I hope you'll join us next week for another episode of Pit Pass Moto. Thanks for listening. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. 
And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 